Chapter Twenty of the Ghost Ship. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ghost Ship by John Conran Hutchison. Chapter Twenty, the Seventh of November. My faithful Negro, however continued the colonel, pausing at this point to puff out another cloud of smoke from his fragrant cigar. Well, he was unable to learn anything of the Haitians, though he tried to make friends of them, for they always stopped their talk amongst themselves on his approach, and would only reply to his overtures in monosyllables expressive of distrust, accompanied by contemptuous gestures that angered poor Cato greatly, for, as he considered that he belonged to me, he felt the insult to be directed not only at himself, but at the whole family. Golly, Massa, he said to me, after a couple or so of attempts that proved fruitless to ingratiate himself into the confidence of the gang. You just wait. I catch them black rascals napping by and by, you see, Massa. You see, especially that darn Marcus. He managed this sooner than he thought, and pretty smartly, too for the very next day he caught that noble scoundrel, who was his particular aversion, walking off with a pair of pistols from Captain Alphonse's cabin. On Cato coming up and stopping him in the very act, the Marquis put down the pistols quickly, saying in his off-hand manner that he was merely examining the locks, remarking how well they were made. But, said Cato, guess he no bamboozled this child. <laughs> The following day, sirs, was the 7th of November, last Friday. That awful, that terrible day. Cato, who had been away forward early in the morning to see about our breakfast, came back aft with a terrified face. Yea, massa, said he, guess those tam niggers up to something eyes. Hear em say they smell the land and the time was rife to settle the white trash that that's what they say and take ship. One of them rascals see me come out of gully and say cut em tongue out if I'll tell you, massa. Of course, on hearing this, I put Captain Alphonse immediately on his guard, and we locked up all the spare arms and ammunition until we should require the same excepting our own revolvers and three other pistols, which we served out to the two mates and the boatswain, all of whom were good men and brave Frenchmen. Monsieur Boisson, when he was asked if he would have one, shrugged his shoulders and said he was a simple passenger. He did not understand fighting. It was not his affair. Well, little Mr. Johnson said he was an Englishman and preferred using his fists. Don Miguel had a pistol of his own. Jingo! The emergency we dreaded came soon enough, sir. Indeed, sooner than we expected, and it was fortunate we had been forewarned. It was just after the noontide hour. I recollect that well, for Captain Alphonse had just taken the altitude of the sun to ascertain our position, when, as he came up from his cabin where he had gone to consult his chronometers and work out the reckoning, as you sailors call it, that that black devil, the Marquis, mounted the poop with a simpering and fawning air. Ah, well, Captain, said he, with a very polite bow, where do you make us out uh, to be, monsieur, near the Bermudas yet? 
my word, yes, replied Captain Alphonse. We are some ten leagues or so westward of the islands, but we're bearing up now, as you see, to reach them. And what time, monsieur, said the Marquis, speaking louder so that some of the other niggers who were on the deck below could hear what he said. Do you think it will be possible for us to land? My companions and myself, monsieur, as you can well imagine, are most anxious to get ashore as soon as possible, so that we may procure a ship to take us on to Havana. But, yes, your anxiety is natural enough, responded poor Captain Alphonse, suspecting nothing from this. I hope to approach near enough to Port St. George to put you ashore sometime in the afternoon. Oi, below there, cried out the Haitian in reply to this, addressing his companions in the waist, who, I noticed, were gradually edging themselves more and more aft. Do you hear that, my brave boys? We are going to land at last. Get the boat ready! This was evidently a signal, for he shouted out the last words in a still higher key than that in which he had been speaking. Oh, you need not hurry, my friend, said the captain, surprised at this order, and smiling at the Haitian's impulsiveness, as he thought it. There will be plenty of time for lowering the boat when we come in sight of land. I think differently, monsieur, joined the other, scowling and assuming an arrogant tone for the first time. I say the time is now. This he yelled at the top of his voice. Instantly the gang of blacks made a rush at the poop on both sides at once, and Captain Alphonse clutched at his revolver, which he had in his pocket, but was unable to get it out in time. Mine, however, was in my hand and ready cocked. "'Holy Moses!' ejaculated Gary O'Neill, his Irish blood making him all attention now at the mere mention of fighting. "'Oh, I hope you let him have it hot, sir!' "'Yes, I did,' replied Colonel Vereker grimly, dropping unconsciously into his native vernacular, which up to now he had almost seemed to have forgotten from his long residence amongst a Spanish-speaking race. "'You may bet your bottom dollar on that, sir. "'I aimed at that scoundrel the Marquis, "'but he jumped backward in his fright, "'and his foot catching in one of the ring-bolts, "'he tumbled right over the poop-deck on to the deck below. "'The shot I had intended for him, "'dropping the black pilot, his constant companion, "'and who was invariably behind him. "'He dropped down dead as a herring. "'Don Miguel, who luckily had just come up from the saloon, "'being handy with his revolver from the rough times he had experienced, "'like myself, in Venezuela, settled another darky, "'while little Johnson, the Englishman, "'caught up a long handspike, bigger than himself, "'and with it knocked down two of the Haitians to his own cheek. "'Madame Boisson, meanwhile, was screaming for her husband, "'her brave Hercules, to come to the rescue.' But the brave Hercules had locked himself in his cabin, as my little Elsie told me afterwards, for fortunately the poor child was not feeling well, and I had desired her to remain below during the hot noontide heat of the sun, and she also said she could hear him crying and sobbing and calling down imprecations on everybody, including my wife, and himself for both being in such a position, Madame Poisson hammering at the door all the time, and after finding he would not open to her appeal for help, apostrophizing him as a coward, a pig. During this time we were pretty busy on deck. The second mate, Bastère, 
and another French seaman who was with him in the cross-jack yard, having come down from aloft to our assistance. Captain Alphonse got his revolver out, when he and Don Miguel and I giving them a volley together, and the others supporting us with what weapons they had, we rushed the rascals off the poop quicker than they came up, the lot returning to the forecastle along with the Marquis, who I was very glad to see had cut his face considerably by his tumble. Captain Alphonse, thereupon, seeing the coast clear, sang out for Ousie, his second officer, and the boatswain, who he thought were away forward, to come up aft and join us, so that we might all be together. But instead of these men, Cato, my own black servant, ran up the poop ladder and told us in much trepidation that Monsieur Ousie, with the boatswain Rigaud, and one of the French sailors, were imprisoned in the forepeak, while the two white sailors and the steward were hard and fast in the main hold, whither they had descended to get some provisions, the mutineers slipping on the hatchway cover over them, on the marquee, that devil giving the signal. "'Ah, my poor fellows!' cried Captain Alphonse. "'That, then, means that we are only ourselves left. Good heavens, what shall we do?' "'Why, hoist a signal of distress,' I suggested at once. We are near Bermuda, on the cruising ground of the English men-of-war, and as these scoundrels have no friends or assistance, I dare say we'll be able to hold out here until some vessel bears up to our aid. Good, my friend, replied Captain Alphonse, who with Bastère, the second mate, and Don Miguel, remained to keep guard with their revolvers, both seated on top of the skylight hatchway, which commanded the approaches to the poop by way of the ladders, while I, with the last of the white sailors, ran aft. Then I called out, Hoist the French flag! I knew that the locker with the flags was in the wheelhouse, close to the taffrail, and there being no one to interfere with us, the negro who had been attending the helm having bolted the moment I pulled out my revolver at the first alarm, the traitor flying to join the other mutineers, my sailor and I soon ferreted out an old ensign, the tricolor, when, binding it on to the signal halyards, we hoisted it about halfway up the peak of our spanker, whence it could best be seen by a passing ship. "'Did you know what the signal meant, Colonel?' said Captain Applegarth, in an inquiring tone. "'That you had a death aboard, eh?' "'Si, senor. Oh, uh, yes, of course.' repeated the colonel, correcting himself almost as soon as he spoke, for his lapse again into the Spanish tongue. There were half a dozen dead Haitians there, whom, by the way, Captain Alphonse and I presently pitched over the side. But beyond that, sir, I believe all sailors regard a flag hoisted in that way, half-mast high, as it is termed, to be a signal of distress. Without a doubt, sir, answered the skipper. I was only testing your nautical experience, that's all. <laughs> I am glad, then, I did not make a blunder about it, as I thought I had done from your question, returned Colonel Vereker, quite seriously, not noticing that the skipper was only poking fun at him in his way, and did not mean anything beyond a bit of chaff. Well, sir, after hoisting the flag, the French sailor and I seized the opportunity to lash the helm amidships, so as to keep the Saint-Pierre on her course for we could not spare him to do the steering, and Captain Alphonse and Don Miguel, with the plucky little Englishman and myself, had all our work to do watching the mutineers with our revolvers. After a time, as the rascals kept pretty quiet in their part of the ship, 
and as my poor little daughter Elsie had been a long time now shut up below, I thought she might come up on the poop to get a breath of fresh air while it was still light, there being no fear of the blacks assailing us again as long as they knew we could see to shoot straight and had our weapons handy. So I sent Cato down to fetch her on deck, and she came up the next moment all full of curiosity and alarm, as you may imagine, the little one wanting to know what had occurred, for the reports of my revolver and the subsequent stillness had occasioned her great fright. Madame Boisson and her husband, the uh, brave Hercules, being but poor comforters. All at once, while I was explaining to her about the flag, telling her that we had hoisted it in order to summon any passing ship to our assistance, she suddenly went to the side and looked over the bulwarks toward the north. The next moment she gave vent to a cry of joy. "'Oh, my father!' she suddenly exclaimed. "'You have only just hoisted the flag in time. There's a big steamer. Look. Look, there it is, and coming up to help us.' "'Where? Where? Where is it? I, I cannot see it.' "'Nonsense! Elsie, you are dreaming, my child,' I said, looking out eagerly to where she pointed, but could see nothing. "'There's no ship there, little one,' and I felt angry at the false alarm. "'But, my father, you are wrong,' still insisted the child, as positive as you please. "'I can see the vessel there in the distance quite plainly. See how the black smoke comes puffing out of the chimneys.' I laughed at this. "'Ah, <laughs> oh, little darling,' said I. There was no ship, and there are no chimneys on board ships at sea. Sailors call them funnels, my dearest one. She pretended to pout on my thus catching her tripping in her talk. Well, my father, she said, with a shrug of her shoulders, as is her habit sometimes, I may be wrong about the chimneys, but I'm not wrong about seeing a ship. Why, my father, there she is now, coming closer and closer, and quite near, so near that I can see, yes, I can see, I am quite sure, a big boy there. Look, look, father, dear, there he is in front of the smoke. He has quite a pleasant face. Elsie turned in my direction as she spoke, and though I was still gazing all the while, I could see nothing, and I was vexed, very vexed, with my little girl for her persistency in the matter. Why, it is gone, quite disappeared she cried out the instant after on rushing to the side and looking over what does it mean why did she not come and help us if she saw the flag you have dreamt it little one i replied shortly as i had done before it's a freak of the imagination and you fancied it you funny little woman but it was a curious incident though sir was it not at such a time with our hearts all full of expectancy and hope. Captain Applegarth was greatly excited by the narrative, and, so it may readily be believed, was I. He asked abruptly, When did this happen? Tell me, Colonel, at once. It is strange, very so. The other looked up with surprise, while Mr. Stokes stared at him with wonder, and the Irishman opened his big blue eyes wide to the full. I have already told you, sir replied Colonel Vereker very quickly. As I told you before, it was the 7th of November, last Friday. Yes, but I mean what time of day, sir? Oh, I should think about five in the afternoon. Perhaps a little later, as the sun was going down, I recollect, at the time. I could not restrain my astonishment at this. It must be the very ship I saw, I thought to myself. 
"'Is the young lady slight in figure, and has she long golden-coloured hair hanging loose about her head, sir?' I eagerly asked, almost breathless in my excitement. "'And tell me, too, did she have a, a large black Newfoundland or, or retriever dog by her side the same evening, sir?' Colonel Vereker seemed even more astonished by this question of mine than I had been by his reply to Captain Applegarth the moment before. "'My brave young sir!' said he, using this somewhat grandiloquent form of addressing me, I suppose in remembrance of the slight service I had done him by swimming with the line to the drifting boat when we picked up him and his companion. My little Elsie is tall and slight for her age, and her hair is assuredly of a golden hue. Ah, yes, like liquid sunshine. Though how you, my good young gentleman, who to my knowledge can never have seen her face to face in this life, can know the color of her hair and what she is like, I must confess that passes my comprehension. But the dog, sir, that is stranger still, remarked Colonel Vereker. I had forgotten to mention that I brought with me on board the Saint-Pierre from my old home at Caracas, a splendid Russian wolfhound, as faithful a creature as my poor negro servant cato his name is ivan and he is now i sincerely hope and trust guarding my little darling girl as i would have done if i had remained with her for not a living soul would dare to touch her with him there ivan would tear them limb from limb first he is a large grayish-black dog with a rough shaggy coat and in reply to your inquiry i must tell you he was on the poop of the ship by the side of my child at the very time that she declared she saw the steamer which i myself could not see anywhere for the moment i was unable to speak i was so overcome at this unexpected confirmation of the sight i had seen on that eventful friday night though I had afterwards been inclined to disbelieve the evidence of my own senses, as everyone else had done, even the skipper at last joining in with the opinion of Mr. Fawcett and all the rest, save the boatswain, old masters. Yes, yes, every one of them imagined that I had dreamt of the ghost ship, as they called my vision, and that I had not seen it at all. But this statement from the colonel absolutely staggered the skipper, and he looked from me to the American and back again at me in the most bewildering manner possible, the old chief, Mr. Stokes, and Gary O'Neill staring at the pair of us with equal amazement. By George, the girl and the dog, the girl and the dog, why, it's the very same ship as you say, how vain it must be so, and by George, my boy, you were right after all, by George, you were at length exclaimed the skipper in a voice the genuineness of whose astonishment could not be doubted colonel vereker i would not have credited this had any one told it me and sworn to the truth of it on oath but the proof is so strong that i cannot possibly disbelieve it sir though it is to my mind a downright impossibility according to every argument of common sense it is certainly the most wonderful thing that has ever happened to me and a most wonderful thing that I have ever heard of since I have been at sea. Heavens, cried the other. But why? You surprise me, sir. Aye, Colonel, rejoined the skipper. But I'm going to surprise you more. Now don't laugh at me, and don't think me an idiot and gone off my head, sir, when I tell you that this lad, Dick Haldane here, 
whether by reason of some mirage or other I cannot tell, for it's beyond my understanding altogether, distinctly saw your ship with her signal of distress, and says he saw your little daughter with the dog by her side aboard her last Friday night at sunset. More than that, sir, he described to me at the time, exactly as you have done now, Colonel, everything he saw, even to the hue of the young girl's hair and the color and texture of the dog's coat. It is altogether marvelous, and indeed incredible. Well, but, said Colonel Vereker slowly, and pausing between every word as if trying to comprehend it all, why, how is that? sir your ship colonel must have been more than five hundred miles away from ours at the time that is all end of chapter twenty